So this is the, the final week of this real quick series before we jump into Advent on, um, on the rhythms where we want to practice the ways of Jesus. It, I, I hope that this, again, like we've been saying from the beginning, that this, this is not something that you're going to learn things that you didn't know about, like, oh, Christians pray, <laughs> you know, like, oh, Christians read the Bible, like, y- you know these things, but there's a depth to it, right? And, and I, I think that oftentimes when we practice these disciplines or when we do anything like this, we, we put a toe in the water and we say, ah, I don't know, I'm not sure if that's for me, you know, and, and we'll, we'll, we'll move on. And there's gold if you dig deep. There's, there's real gold to be found if you go into these things. And no matter what the, the, the practice might be as we are going through these, I think that there's such a wealth to care for your soul. Um, and I, I want to make sure that, that we are well equipped for whatever lies ahead. I think a, a lot of places, um, the pandemic revealed where we have shallow roots. You know, there's a lot of people who, who stumbled in, in the darkness, people who stumbled through that. And that's not a judgment on them, but it is a revelation, I think, of what they've been built upon, right? Whenever you've been building upon shifting sand, then, then when the day comes, you realize, what do I have left? What, what can I stand upon? And, and th- this is the hope for you, right? That you'll be prepared. Um, I, I'm, I pray that we won't have another 2020, but you know, there will be something. There, there will come a day that, that will visit you where you will need to pull upon the roots that, that have been established by these practices. Um, so it's not simply good advice. These aren't simply virtues. The, these are a way for you to care for yourself and to get through this. And just to recap, you know, we, we said that all of this is in the same thrust as abiding in God. That, that's the overarching principle through all of this, right? Is that we're meant to abide in the Father. And if these practices are devoid of the presence of God, then you're just simply creating some sort of a, a practice in your own life, some, some rigid discipline which actually bears no fruit from, from the gospel. And it could be good, and it can be something that, that gives order to your days. I mean, there's a militaristic precision that a lot of people like to, to do. They wake up at the same time, right? They eat the same food, and they, they make their bed in the same way. And, and that gives them some order and some semblance in, the, in their life of control. But that's not what this is about. This isn't about just trying to, to control your life. This is, if anything, it's about giving control of your life to the Father. If anything, this is about finding your way in Him and getting closer to Him. So th- all of this is in the same idea as abiding in the Father. We cannot be devoid of His presence. And last week, we talked about the disciplines of surrender. When we say enough, enough. And often in this world, we don't say enough. You're, you're told to take all that you can. You're, you're, you're told, especially if something's good, We'll keep going for it. Get more and more and more as long as you can. But there's a spiritual discipline that we say enough. Even when we say enough to good things, as we saw when Jesus went into the wilderness, right? Food is not bad. (laughs) And he said enough of that. I'm going to make sure that there's no appetite controlling me apart from my, my obedience to the Father. It's not because the behavior is bad, but because we are choosing someone else. Often it's even saying no to those good things for something better. And those were solitude and silence, tithing, offerings, sacrifice, secrecy, submission, fasting, and Sabbath. And I, I hope you put those into practice. I, I really do. Um, I wish I had started saving uh, my money sooner in life than, than what I did. I wish I started investing it sooner in a you know, 401k or whatever your employers might give you. I wish I bought Bitcoin back whenever... You could get several thousand for a dollar. I actually did almost. It was very close. You know, I, w- I wish I'd started working out sooner. You know, all those things that, that, that pay dividends over the years. I wish I'd started flexing, you know, trying to be flexible before I ruptured my Achilles tendon. Like, it's too late to work on your flexibility when you've already ruptured your Achilles tendon. It's like, I should have started that 10, 15 years ago, Right. This is the season where I think you have the encouragement, hopefully, in your life to start putting those good practices in because the day is coming. I, I don't want you to uh, regret or, or wish that you've been prepared for the days whenever trial comes. Um, as a kid, I, we'd play games. You know, we'd make up our own games, whatever they would be. They were often some variation of, like, you know, tag or hide-and-go-seek or something, and often with boys, they were rather rough. And I remember we had a game we called Crocodiles where you would have everybody on the ground and somebody would try to run through and you would just try to pull him down and like beat him senselessly with a pillow. We had another game where you put a kid, you know, head down into a uh, into a sleeping bag 
and he'd try to wander around a room as everybody else beat him with pillows. I might not have had the best friends, but <laughs> but the thing is, in all these games, we would always declare something, right? We'd say, I'm, I'm home. This is my safe spot. You know what I'm talking about? I think this is a pretty universal thing that kids do, because I've seen my, my kids and the neighbors do this, right? You're, you're playing some game, and you're, you're going to say, the couch is safe, right? The, the kitchen floor is safe. As long as, I, as, long as I'm touching this, I, I know that you can't get me, right? That this is it. And we do that trying to just give ourselves a reprieve, right? That's really what it is. Because especially in games of like tag or something, you know you're not going to be able to win if you're, you're you know, stuck to the, the couch in the living room, but you're trying to not get hit at that point in time, right? And so we, we have this whole cycle that I think we do of just trying to find some way where we're not losing ground and we can just declare that we're safe. Revelation 3, starting verse 15. I know your deeds. You are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say I'm rich. I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich. White clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. We often don't realize we're not winning that game. <laughs> we don't realize that, that as long as we're treading water, we're not actually getting to the destination that we're trying to get to. You know, how, how long can you tread water, church? You know, I mean, maybe think about that physically. Like, you, you know you're not getting to the place where you need to go. You're just trying to survive and trying to get through this thing as long as we can. Matthew 25, in a similar way, says this, Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I know that you're a hard man, harvesting where you've not sown and gathering where you've not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here's what belongs to you. The idea of the servant who didn't want to risk anything. They were afraid of, of making a misstep. They are afraid of doing something wrong. So they just buried it just trying to save face, just trying to, to get through this without doing anything. Nothing risked, nothing, nothing can, that I can lose, and therefore I'm just going to get through. I'm going to be okay. I'm going to be okay. And that is often presented as the hope of our lives, that you'll be okay. There's no spiritual discipline of okay. There's no spiritual fruit of treading water. There, there's, there's nothing here that, that's going to say, the idea is that you can just get into the sewers of heaven. That, that, that's our plan, is that, that one day your sins will be forgiven enough that you, you can't go into the throne room. But, you know, the streets are made of gold, and, you know, it's a relatively soft metal, so you can make a bed there and it'll be okay. That's not the story here. And I think often whenever we want to treat these things as less than what they are, when we don't want to give everything of our lives to these things, when we, when we give to the Lord things that we think are spiritual and we hold to ourselves the things that are, are worldly or, or things I want to do with my own time, we don't realize we're really costing ourselves any direction, any hope, any joy, any of this prosperity that the Lord actually does want to give to his friends, to his family. No spiritual gift or discipline of being nice or okay or abiding your time. I think that a life without the spiritual disciplines is treading water spiritually. You're not going anywhere, but you're not sinking. I don't know how many years of my own life I've wasted just trying to be okay, and trying to focus on the other things that I feel like maybe matter more, right? And we say that there's seasons of life where I'm just so busy, or, or there, there's a time where you, you've got to focus on your career. Or there's, there's, a, there's a time where, you know, it, it's just, it's the me time, you know, and, and I'm just going to focus on, on myself. And we, we divide and segment ourselves, and we're devoiding our, our lives to the very things that's going to give it depth and meaning and possibility and future and hope. And all this time, the Lord has been declaring clearly, and, and, and for anybody who would listen, come to me so you can really be rich. <laughs> You know, I, I don't want you, I don't want you to, to just languish in this lukewarm life. You're not meant to be okay. He came to give us life and life to the full. Do we understand that we get that when we follow him, or, or do we think, I'm not sure that's the life for me? And like, I, I want a little bit of Jesus, but I'm not sure I want to be all the way into the ways of Jesus. You know, I, I want a little bit of this, and, and, and maybe that'll be sufficient so I can get to heaven when I die. I just want to make sure I'm going to be okay. And I'm not sure about the rest of this stuff. And I think that this is because we severely misunderstand what life is meant to be. 
we severely misunderstand the life that Christ came to give us, that it begins here and now and it continues. That every time that we engage in the practice of the Spirit, every time that we listen to the Word of God, every time that we pray, every time that we, we move forward in service and ministry, every time that we sacrifice the things of this world for something of an eternal nature, it actually strengthens our souls and our outlook and helps us with life as it's been meant to be given to us. We're not just meant to try to empty things out, get rid of the bad and just hope that the good's going to be okay. We get this wild insight in, uh, in Matthew 12, of, of after somebody goes through a, a spiritual practice of, of being redeemed, what this might look like. This is Matthew 12, verse 43. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. This is how it will be with this wicked generation. You know, like, we want to experience salvation, right? We want to be healed of, of, of the demons. We want to be set free from these things and these nasty things that we've done or that other people have done to us. We, we want to be forgiven of our sins, but then what? And we neglect the house. We don't fill it with the Holy Spirit. We just leave it as a, as a vacant thing because we think, I'm now okay. We think the idea is, look, the bad stuff is gone, therefore I can do what I want to do with all, all this free time, all this free space. Like I can, it can just be empty and free and whatever. But all this time is setting us up for failure. It's setting us up for, for a day of judgment when it comes and, and push comes to shove. And this is one of the reasons why we, we always say be filled with the Holy Spirit, you know, not just dabbled in. <laughs> Not, not just, you know, a, a once-in-a-lifetime experience where you know that the Holy Spirit's real, but that we are filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, a lot of other religions will talk about neutrality. You know, be at peace with yourself. Be at peace with the universe. And actually, whenever I, I left the Christian faith for a number of years in my, in my teen, I, I, I thought that this was going to be a, a good enough practice, that I could just be at peace with things. I, I, I could... You know, that, that sounds great, that other people would be at peace with me, I'd be at peace with them, I could be a nice guy, and everything's kind of going to work out okay. And it it, it, the real reality hit me that what I really needed was not just to be okay from this day going forward, just to not make any ripples, just to, to try to get through this thing okay. Because I realized the gravity of sin that I had committed that needed to be reconciled. It needed to be forgiven. It needed to be confronted and not just smoothed over, skated over, buried, and never looked at. And often whenever you look at the, the, pre, the religions that are going to practice peace or, or whatever these things, they can't reconcile with something that happened, right? When we've committed sins, whenever we've, we've engaged with this practice that has broken something, broken relationship, broken our souls, it's not enough to say, go and be at peace. <laughs> Needs to be confronted by the power of the Holy Spirit, needs to be healed. That's what the cross gives us. It's what the empty grave gives us. It's not just a, a, a way to skate through these things and, and make it okay from here going forward, but to reconcile who we are with the kingdom of God and what we're meant to be. I'm afraid that with this and other topics, we've taken something that's meant to be instruction and we've turned it into a virtue. This is something I've been struggling through as I've gone to, through this myself. I've never had this thought before when I've talked about, talked about the spiritual disciplines. But as I've been diving into it for these past few weeks, I realize that it's, it's easy to hear these things and think that it's icing to the cake, right? That, that we, we think that the, the, the matters uh, that are at hand have got to be the gospel. It's got to be this idea of, of understanding who we are in Christ. And, and as long as we agree with that sort of thing, then we're going to be okay and we'll be able to, to move from that spot. And I, we think of the teachings of Jesus, the rhythms of Jesus, the life that Jesus lived and showed us how to do it as kind of a suggestion, right? Or a, a virtue. It's really good if we spend time in the word of God, but is it necessary? Well, maybe, maybe not. But, but you know, what matters is that you know that you're a new creation in Christ. And, and however you know that, then, then great for you. And we start neglecting the fact that these are actually the teachings of Jesus, calling into a deep practice of relationship with him. We don't actually do these things then. We think they're extras. 
the substance of the thing was that we agree that they're good. And we turn this into an exercise of our mind and not of our lives. I see these practices, these spiritual disciplines, as tearing down the walls between the secular and the sacred. All right? Between the world that is and the world to come. When we practice the spiritual disciplines, that's what we're doing. We're saying, no longer will I practice the ways of this world. I will practice the ways of my king. No longer will I live in this world that, that has, you know, all these selfish behaviors of, of trying to make sure that we're either okay or that we're going to be well-fed or all these things. I'm going to tear those things down, and I'm going to put all that work, the way that I spend my time and my life into the kingdom of God, where moth will not eat, where, where the gold will not be tarnished, where, where we won't lose these things, where it can be safe and secure, and we know the life that's to come. But instead, we don't do that. We think we got to dabble between one and the other. We spend part of our time here and part of our time there. And I, I've struggled with this so much over my life because as the, the kid in the 90s, whenever Christian music was becoming a real big thing, right, we only listened to the good Christian music. And then you had your secular music, which you would listen to on the weekends with your friends, you know, because that's what the cool kids did. Maybe this is just me. But, <laughs> but you know, you, you would have this music you listen to over here because, yeah, that, that's, that's fun. I like that. But this is, what my, my, this is my God music, you know. And we would create this divide between ourselves, I think really tearing our souls a lot of ways into two. And you have your, your church friends, and you have your school friends, you have your work friends, and your work activities, then you have your neighborhood friends, and your neighborhood activities, and you know, and if they're ever in the same room together, it's stressful. That's a good sign that something's maybe off. It's stressful because it's like, I don't know how to be. I don't know how to be when they're all in the same room because I act one way at work, and I act another way when I'm at church. And we're really putting ourselves through the ringer when we do this. Because we're, we're living a segmented life. Because we, we've allowed our, our, our lives to be torn apart. And we don't have a unified self that we're trying to build up. We're trying to keep a world or a foot in both worlds. Doing these practices of engagement is not meant to be escaping the ways of the world for just a little break. But I really believe that it's a way of shaping our lives and our community for all the days of our lives. For all the days to come. That when we do these things, it sets our life in order that the Spirit can come. So these are the disciplines of engagement. Dis disciplines of engagement we're going to talk about is the Word of God, worship, prayer, community, feasting, service, and ministry. So again, this isn't whenever we're saying enough. This isn't when we're practicing those, those practices of, of surrender, those practices of abstinence. This is when we're going to engage in something. This is when we're, we're going to be promoting something and, and going forth with it. So, the word of God. Matthew 4. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. We've read that, we speak that, we know that, we've heard that, but often we don't connect that with Deuteronomy 8, where it says this, Be careful to follow every command I am giving you today, so that you may live and increase, and may enter and possess the land the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. Before I even get into the rest of this, recognize the goodness of God there. Obey these commands so that you may live and increase. Why? Because if you do bad, I'm going to punish you? <laughs> Is it obey these things because otherwise, man, the other boot's going to fall and it's going to be miserable. Obey these things so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Your clothes did not wear out. Your feet did not swell during these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. I really wanted to use this full passage because it does use the word discipline in here, but it's not often the way we think about it when we talk about the spiritual disciplines. We, we, we kind of have this, this separation in our mind that this discipline means punishment. 
right? Whenever the Lord's talking, when we talk about disciplining your kids, actually, Adrian, I loved what she shared before. I thought that was so, I, I, I had to not jump into all this stuff because I knew what was coming. I was like, this is so good. It's setting the table for exactly what I think the Lord wants to tell us today. The Lord is not desiring to punish. He's not looking to, to deal out all this disappointment on you for what you've done, but he is looking to correct us so that we can have the good life, so we can enjoy the fullness of the land that he's promised that he wants us to have and to inhabit. He, his desire has always been for good, but we know, we know, we know when we've done wrong. We know that feeling of shame, and we know that we pull back. And the Lord is so good that he doesn't leave us there, that he can look at us, he can confront that, and the things that are, are wrong, the things that are broken, he can leave them on the side, as he heals us, restores us, and brings us forward. That we confront the brokenness of this world, the brokenness of ourselves. I forget, Pat, you had a wonderful line that you said this, this morning too about the, the grace of brokenness or, or something. That, that, that he's so good that he extends the grace to break us when we need it. That's not a fun word. But thankfully, that's our God. And he does it in his timing, in his way, as only he can. And if we try to discipline ourselves, <laughs> yeah, it doesn't go so well. I, I don't know about you, but every time that I, I try to, to, to muster the strength to pick myself up uh, my own bootstraps or try to do these things on my own accord or, or try to convict myself and, and do this, I know there's a falsity to it, you know, and, and they don't last very long because I'm not yet convinced that this is something I need to do or that has the value or, or I just don't have the strength to do it myself. You need to have the Father leading you into these things. I think we object to these practices often because of that word discipline that's in there. We associate it with punishment. But in this passage, we have humility, hunger, we have testing, we have discipline. And alongside that, we have godly provision, we have protection, we have teaching, we have increase. You know, we could soften this and say that, that this is just the Lord training us, that, that the testing is just a revealing of what's already in our hearts. And I, I think that those are actually true statements, but that's not the full picture. It's not just that. I don't want to walk back from the fullness offered by God, which does include a humbling, which does include correction, which does include rebuke, which doesn't in include discipline, because that's a good father. That's a good father leading us to where we need to go. At the same point, and remember always that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is hard for us to hold in, in, in our minds at the same time. And I think increasingly, generation after generation, when we get a taste of fullness, when we get a taste of goodness, when we get a, a taste of what it's meant to look like, then we reject discipline all the much more so because we don't want to be disciplined any longer. We think, it'll be good enough without it. I'm, I'll, be a, I'll be okay again. And we go back to trying to tread water. Because we don't want to confront those things. We don't want to deal with those things. I've made it so far. I'm good enough from this stage on, right? If I stayed here and didn't make it into the, the promised land, it's not so bad. <laughs> here I, I, I can keep one foot in Egypt. And I, I remember that there's onions and, and leeks and potatoes and, and there's gold things I could look at. Yeah, I wasn't, yeah, I was a slave. But, you know, whatever. It wasn't so bad. And there's a, this ocean between me and where the Lord tells me to go. I don't know that I can get there on my own. So three quarters of the way is good enough for me. In the vineyard, we say that we want to serve. We want to do the things of the Lord out of overflow and not overwork. This is actually a really important and very challenging principle. We want to do the things that we do out of overflow and not overwork. Doing spiritual disciplines out of overwork is easy. <laughs> well, maybe first season it's easy. Doing it out of overflow is very challenging. Because that means that there's something in us that's inspiring us, that, that's leading us, that, that's tending us and calling us to go in a certain direction. That can only come, I believe, from spending time with the Father. That can only come from seeing and trusting his promises and knowing his goodness and trusting him to work, work this thing out over time. There's a great sweetness to be found going the same direction with the same heart as the Father. There's a great sweetness to be found there. The thing is, I think we believe that we'll prove ourselves in the wilderness, right? 
that we see these little escapades out there that we go into the wilderness to find ourselves or try to prove ourselves to, to show that we're, we're up to the task. We retreat for 40 days to, to, to say, look how strong I am. Look how robust I am. Look what I've learned about myself. You don't believe always that when we go into the wilderness that we're going to grow in dependence on the Father. We believe that we'll find ourselves, not that we'll encounter him. And that's a big difference. Whenever we go into periods of testing and trial, whenever we go into his discipline, are we looking to ourselves or are we looking to him? So our disciplines then come down to punishing ourselves, right? Trying to make ourselves into something that we aren't on our own, when instead his disciplines are about life, about promises. I've, I've heard it said before that, that exercise is, is the celebration of what your body can do, not a punishment for the things that you've done. I'm not sure I'm there yet, <laughs> but it, it, it's a great outlook to it, right? That whenever I go out to run in the mornings, it, it's a celebration of the fact that my legs work, and that my lungs work, and that my heart works, and that, that I'm able to do these things. And, and so then I put it into practice, and I, and I do this thing because it's a celebration that my body is capable and able to do these things. But the problem is I've got a watch that, that watches my heart rate. I, I've got it, it, it checks my stride, and I'm a fiercely competitive person. And, and I look at what I did yesterday, and I think, well, I've got to go faster today, you know? And, and I just punish myself trying to always be better. And, and I'm driving myself because I want to be somebody else. That's not what the, the spiritual disciplines are about. It's about finding life. It's about celebrating life. And the fact that the word of God is given to us, that we realize that, that we do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. That's what this is about. This is telling us that he's given us a way for life. He's given us a way to be better. He's given us a way that, that we can actually be sustained as we follow him. This is the word of God in Ezekiel 3. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, eat what you find. All right, eat this scroll. What an unusual thing. And go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he caused me to eat that scroll. And he said to me, son of man, feed your belly and fill your stomach with the scroll that I give you. So I ate. And it was in my mouth like honey and sweetness. Do we believe that? <laughs> I mean, like real talk. Do you believe that whenever you eat and consume the word of God, that it's going to be sweetness? Or do you open the pages? Do you spend time listening to the Father and you go, oh, that's, that's a hard one. I don't, I don't know about that. Do you go into it like the Bereans with a, an expectant longing saying, could the Lord possibly be this good? Do we actually allow him to speak into our lives and to take this in as truth? Or are we fighting it like the broccoli that my daughter never wants to eat? Not this daughter. This daughter eats broccoli. <laughs> John 6, Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food. My blood is real drink. If you look that up in the Greek, do you know what it says? Real food <laughs> and real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogues in Capernaum. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Such a hard 
passage for us. It's like as soon as you think that, that Jesus is going to make it easier on you, he just cranks the dial up to, to, just, to just say that there's more, there's the depth, there's something else you can get into here. And this is so challenging for us, right? That, that, that we're thinking, okay, I can handle this as symbolism. I can handle this as metaphor. And he just has to put the words in there, my flesh is real food and my, my blood is real drink. And you're like, but, uh, but, but, where are you going? <laughs> why, why do you have to make this so difficult? But this is the consistent message from the beginning. Man shall not live by bread alone, but on every mouth that proceeds, or every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Second here, worship. Worship is both joyful celebration and it's sorrowful lamentations. Worship is something we make a big deal of here at, at this church. And it's something that has given life color and meaning and and body that we get to partake in together. And we often think of worship in this day and age as just musical worship. And, and there's a good reason that we do in, enjoy musical worship. But worship is so much more than that. It, it's aligning our thoughts and our minds and our actions to celebrate the goodness of who the Lord is. This is a real spiritual discipline that we do not just take in whatever comes and just say, that's how it is. And we just let that be the end of the story. But worship is a way of, of taking in whatever comes and saying, and this is where the Lord is in here. And this is a way of, of listening to things through this filter of saying, God is good. Where is he good here? I will turn this back to him in praise. This good thing that came to me, I will turn back to him in praise. There was a time early on in my career where I was feeling pretty well accomplished. It's funny now whenever I, I can see these early days. And, and I, I remember thinking that the Lord had provided for me a job and a family and, and everything was kind of going okay. And I had this time, I remember in, in the shower, I, my, my car had, I forget if it was dying or what was going on, but I, I remember thinking, I need to get a new car. But you know what? I can do that. I, I have the, the capability, I have the means. Thank you for this job that I had at, at IBM. And it's like, everything's going to be fine. But I realized I was relying on myself. All right. Th I hope that if I could put this into perspective, this was an economy far, far <laughs> removed from where we're at today. And I remember thinking, I'll be okay. But I didn't want to rely on myself. And I prayed to the Lord. I said, Lord, I'd like to know your provision. And so I, I, I had that prayer. I went into work that day, fully expecting to go out that weekend and find a car. And my boss called me in for a 15-minute meeting. You know when those pop up on your calendar? And I remember thinking, this is either really good or really bad. You know, that there's like nothing, nothing in between. This is one of those two things. And I went in there, and sure enough, it was, it was a good one. And they had seen some of the work that I did, and they wanted to give me a special bonus, which was exactly the thing that I needed for the down payment for the new car. And, and it, it was just a way that I realized that, that I was, the things I was capable of doing on my own, living a life on my own provision, living a life even with the things that I could celebrate and say, thank you, Lord, for my job. Thank you for these things. Giving it back to the Lord in praise, coming to him as the source. There, there is a depth. There's a celebration. And I was able to, to share this. Not It's actually the, the same car that I drive now, which is a 2003 Honda. The same car I bought from that. It was a way of saying, this isn't my own two hands. But I worship you, Lord, for this. Thank you. Thank you for providing a way and making things not about my own life, but about what you have. Luke 4, he went to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling, he found the place where it's written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the intent, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, let me point out that this was his custom. This wasn't his family's custom. This wasn't the, the demands of, of his faith or the demands of his culture. His custom was to go to the synagogue and to open the word of God. Again, we were talking about scripture and to read. And what comes forth is the goodness of God. The year of the Lord's favor to set the oppressed free. The fact that the good news is good news 
so many times I, I fear that whenever we think about this as judgment, we, the good news does not sound as good to us. We're afraid of, of the shame that we might feel. We're afraid of all these things that are going to cause us to pull back. We're afraid of the punishment that's going to come. Worship is recognizing that the good news is good news. I love in Scripture, I said this before, that there's the song of Moses, the song of Miriam, the song of Mary. Scripture and story is going on, and out of context, they have to celebrate. They have to acknowledge what the Lord is doing, even whenever it turns into a prayer, even when there's still a hopeful longing for things that haven't happened yet. In that context, they say, Lord, we worship you. We acknowledge that you are good. It's not generic praise. It's tied to the life of the community, to what God is doing. John 4, sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. This is Jesus and the woman at the well. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but the Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit. His worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just like the other passage, Jesus brings us back to reveal who he is. But understand this, worship is engaging with what we know. Have you ever tried to worship with a, a sense of, of, of disbelief? where you don't really believe this thing, but you're saying and you're, you're kind of trying to stretch yourself in, into this whole space. And there is a disconnect. When your heart and your mind are not engaged with something that, that, that you believe, you're just kind of throwing out there saying, well, man, I, I, wouldn't that be great if that were true? And it's this hopeful thing that we're trying to span this gap and we're, we're often using somebody else's word or somebody else's context or somebody else's life story for us. The invitation that I feel we have for this is to worship in spirit and truth. Worship what you know. Worship where you are. What, what do you know today about God? What, what have your kids revealed to you of the Holy Spirit and your needs and your own limitations? You know, what, what is stirred in your heart? Let's worship what we know. Not a God of our own construction. Not a God that, that, that we can understand fully. Let us confront the God of the universe in context as he reveals himself to us. That is a wonderful expression of worshiping today. Next one is prayer. Have you ever noticed that the Lord's prayer is a community prayer? It's not my Father who's in heaven. It's our Father who art in heaven. This is engaging with the community and engaging with the Father at the same time. I want to read this to you, Matthew 6. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, you can break this down, and we've done this before, and there's books written about just the, the depth and beauty of this prayer, and you can take it as a model and do all sorts of things for that. But that's not the point. The point for us today, I think, is that this is something that we're called to do, to practice, and something that you learn, right? I think we like to, to think that, that prayer is something that we can do naturally and easily, and I'll tell you, I think it is. But there's a depth to it. The fact that his disciples said, teach us how to pray. The, the fact that, that Jesus learned and grew into these things, it wasn't fully natural just to be like, and this is what we do. We have to understand what this process is like because prayer is, again, on the theme of today, it's engaging. It's not just thoughts and prayers. It's not just sending good energy or, or just trying to see what's in our hearts. We often challenge our, our, our daughters at, at dinner time whenever we pray and we bless this food to slow down, <laughs> realize that we're talking to God, right? Otherwise, it becomes just a, a rote practice that you just rattle off 
the same six things. Every Bless the, the hands that made this food. You know, we, we have these, these preconceived prayers that, that we just don't even think about the words anymore. We just offer them up there into the, 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 the great void and trust that they'll go where they need to go and do what they need to do. Or it's for the people sitting around the table. When we realize that prayer is actively engaging with our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. It does, for me, change the, the tone and the timbre and the approach that I take to this, and I believe it would for you, too. I think that we do a disservice when we pray silently. Who, who prays silently? I mean, I'm, I do, yeah. I, I imagine most of us pray silently a lot of times. Do you have a practice of getting away on your own and praying out loud? True question. A few of us do? If you are of that mind, do you find that to be more fulfilling and satisfying? Sometimes, sometimes yes, sometimes no. For me, and I, I think, I don't know how universal this will be, when I vocalize my prayers, there's something that is just different about it. I remember there was a, there was a Sabbath that I, I was able to take here a few months ago, and I went out into the woods, and I was silent for like probably 36 hours. And I, the whole time I was, I was struggling with thoughts and prayers and things that I wanted and things that weren't there, and, and I was praying silently this whole time, and then I just remember there's a point, and I'm probably like that crazy guy in the woods, you know? <laughs> and it's like in the middle of a thought, I just started praying out loud of like, but God, what about blah, blah, you know? And it all sort of came out out loud. That was a moment of breakthrough for me. That was a moment where I felt heard and seen by the Lord. That was a, a place of confrontation with the reality of a God who cared. And I think I could have kept it inside. I think I could have been silent. I think I could have struggled through this. And I think, it, you know, the Lord hears what's in our hearts. I, I believe theologically that that's all fine. But as a spiritual discipline, as a practice that engages my body, my soul, my tongue, my ears, to vocalize these things out loud, to do them even in community and context, has been a life-giving practice for me. So I encourage you to pray out loud. And, of course, then that connects to community, our next one. See, it's not, there's a lot here, but we're going to make our way through them. Psalm 133 is a go-to for this. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It's like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It's as if the dew of Hermon was falling on Mount Zion. For there the Lord bestows his blessing even life forevermore. It's such a, a quick psalm. It's one that we, we quote. It's also a weird picture. How is community like oil and, and dew? Like, like I think it, it coats everything. It's not good for man to be alone. I'm, I'm an introvert. You know, I, like, I, go off, I go off into the woods for myself. We had solitude and silence as part of the spiritual disciplines from last week. But, but these practices of engaging community is vital to have the voice of the Lord speak into context. It's vital for us to do these things together. You know, I, I, I've not met anybody called to spiritual life of, of being a hermit. I, I don't think that that really exists. You know, how, how can you have the gift of faith for somebody to, to see their healing? How can you see the prophetic words spoken if there's not somebody to hear those words that you're speaking? It, it only makes sense in context that we would love and serve and do these things together. Ministry can only ever be worked out in community. I've been giving a lot of thought to, to John chapter 1. And I think that knowing that Advent's coming, I'm going to probably be stuck on this one for a while. John 1, starting in verse 10. He was in the world, though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of a human decision, nor husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. You've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. You know, we, we have had whole books written on that. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That's the most amazing passage, I think, maybe in all of Scripture. I'll probably say it's a different one next week, but, <laughs> but what an absolutely stunning revelation. Because God had this plan from the beginning. You know how he could have done this? Fully grown Jesus up in heaven, 
He says, I'm going to sacrifice myself to you right now. And he sacrifices himself. And then he goes, you're now forgiven. And he moves on. And like, you know, God's God. He, he could do however he wanted to. But he put himself in context. He grew. He cried. He loved. He lost. He lived in context with people, with names and faces. He saw Mary and Joseph. He had brothers and sisters. He chose context. He chose community to grow into, to appreciate, to be a, a part of. And there's something about the Lord came, became flesh, and made his dwelling among us. He didn't come by for a visit. He made his dwelling here. Community is not about just the, these like week-long missions trips, which I'm not completely poo-pooing on, but you know, where you just kind of blitz by and you're hoping that my proximity is going to be a blessing to get you through whatever. The, one of the wonderful things about the world today that I've loved so much, yes, we support these, these churches in Russia. I hear from them now just about every week. You know, I, I know I didn't share a new one today because I was in Boston this whole week and everything, but I got a video of one of the pastors singing a worship song. So wonderful. I just, it's in Russian. I couldn't really tell you what he said. But <laughs> I was able to hear it because this is now doing community together. This isn't sending off a check, right? Th this isn't just saying, oh, I'll be praying for you and then forgetting. This is being engaged in the story of God's people in context and community as we do this over time. This is the theme through pretty much every discipline today. It's community community. Here's one that I think you might love. The next one is feasting. It's kind of like fasting, but with an extra E in it. Um, I, oh, if I was good, I could have said what the E stands for. Y'all can think of it. <laughs> it's fasting with Y'all are quick. Y'all should be preachers. It's with an E for eating. Wow, that's pretty funny. All right. <laughs> so feasting. And I, I, I actually, I struggled I wanted to include this one first. It was a, an aspect of community, but I think there's something in here. Leviticus 23 describes the Sabbath together with the seven feasts, the feast of Passover, the feast of unleavened bread, the feast of first fruits, the feast of the harvest, the feast of trumpets, the day of atonement, and the feast of tabernacles. It, it's kind of a wonderful calendar where you can look at the feasts that you will have to celebrate throughout the year. You know that the community is coming together. You know that there's going to be this on the calendar, something to look forward to. And it's, it's really a wonderful cadence to your life to have that. Luke 14, verse 12, when you give a banquet, when, when you give, not if, not if you're so inclined, but when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. This is the understanding of sharing God's goodness with people. That This is the understanding that, that it's not they say, well, you know, you'll be okay in heaven, so I don't have to do anything right here and now. Like, like it, let, me, let me just tell you, go and be well fed. Be blessed and enjoy the grace of the Lord and the fact that you know that you're a new creation in him. He's saying when you have a banquet, let it be like a kingdom banquet. Let it be like the Father in heaven who's made a, a longer, bigger table because he couldn't fit, it, fit everybody at the one. Further on, again in Luke 16, I tell you, and I, I come back to this one all the time, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Spend it all, he's saying, <laughs> while you're alive and use it to gain friends for yourselves. This is community. This is feasting. This is party time. This is Thanksgiving. This is Friendsgiving. This is all of this stuff because this is a goodness. This is a spiritual discipline. Maybe for those of us who are introverts, you understand why this is a spiritual discipline because <laughs> sometimes it does cost you, not just financially, but it costs you an emotional investment to open up your house, to invite the neighbors, to invite people who might make things awkward and weird, to have, you know, even like we were saying before, that the friends from school and the friends from church intermingling, and you're like, how are we going to do this? It's going to be where you can declare you are beloved. We are here to enjoy the fullness of the kingdom of God. Deuteronomy 14, so you see this is Old Testament as well as New Testament, talking about the temple. If the temple is too distant and you have been blessed by the Lord your God, and you cannot carry your tithe 
because the place where the Lord will choose to put his name is so far away. Exchange your tithe for silver. Take the silver with you and go to the place the Lord your God will choose. Use the silver to buy whatever you like, cattle, sheep, wine, or other fermented drink, anything you wish. You and your household shall eat there in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice. Like, have a party. <laughs> you know, that your sacrifice to the Lord, doing it together and in enjoying the goodness of God. I think so many times we think of the spiritual disciplines as those spiritual disciplines of denying ourselves, of abstinence, when instead the spiritual discipline is also opening up the storehouses that the Lord has given to us to everyone, not hoarding it to ourselves, not, not holding this to myself, not, not only being in my own world and the only things I want to do, but saying, come and see that the Lord is good. I'd love to reclaim Mardi Gras. I, I, I would. Maybe this is a bit too ambitious for us and we're not even in, in Louisiana. But Mardi Gras is actually a fantastic celebration for wonderful reasons. Fat Tuesday? Fat Tuesday is the idea that I have all of these things in my house and I'm going to be going into a, a period of fasting because it's a spiritual discipline. What am I going to do with all of this? Let me have a party and invite the entire town to it. I, I actually, I love that idea. I don't love what it has become. <laughs> But the idea of saying, I have all of this community come to my house. Let's celebrate the goodness of what we have. Let, let's celebrate. Let me make a, a giant cake. Let, let me go ahead and, and celebrate with all this stuff. Let me kill the fattened calf. Let, me, let us do all this together and you come and enjoy the fullness that I have too. What a wonderful tradition that became horrible and, and <laughs> not at all what the Lord in, intended. There's this guy that I, I quote often. He's an Anglican priest, Father Capone. He wrote cookbooks and books about the heavenly banquet that we have. It's a, it's a priest who wrote cookbooks. True story. And he says this, and I want to read this for you twice so that you can hear it. We were given appetites, not to consume the world and forget it, but to taste its goodness and hunger to make it great. That is the unconsolable heartburn, the lifelong disquietude of having been made in the image of God. So good. I'm going to read it for you one more time. We were given appetites, not to consume the world and forget it, but to taste its goodness and hunger to make it great. That is the unconsolable heartburn, the lifelong disquietude of having been made in the image of God. He talks and praises the, the, the God who gave us butter and cream. Like, He's like, of course God is good. Have you tasted butter? <laughs> like, it's such a wonderful take on, on a cookbook to see somebody celebrating the goodness of the God who gave this all to us and hungering to see justice and goodness and celebration of life and everything that he does. He convicted me to buy a pocket knife and walk because he says every father should have a, a knife to cut off a flower if he encounters one for his daughter. And I thought, yeah, <laughs> I'm going to do that. So this, this is a, a, a prayer that he wrote too. O oh Lord, refresh our sensibilities. Give us this day our daily taste. Restore to us soups that's with that spoons that will not sink in, and sauces which are never the same twice. Raise up among us stews with more gravy than we'd have bread to blot it with, and casseroles that put starch and substance in our limp modernity. Take away our fear of fat and make us glad of the oil which ran upon Aaron's beard. Give us pasta with a hundred fillings and rice in a thousand variations. Above all, give us grace to live as true men, to fast till we come to a refreshed sense of what we have, and then to dine gratefully on all that comes to hand. Drive far from us, O most bountiful, all creatures of air and darkness. Cast out the demons that possess us. Deliver us from the fear of calories and the bondage of nutrition and set us free once more in our own land where we, we shall serve thee as thou hast blessed us with the dew of heaven, the fatness of the earth, and plenty of corn and wine. Amen. <laughs> it, it, there's a lot there. I actually, I really, really hope you take this to heart. Okay? That we would enjoy the bountifulness that the Lord has given us. And where people do not have it, share it with them. Share it with them. Open up your tables. I, I didn't even plan this so well as it's coming out that it is Thanksgiving week. What a wonderful time to love your neighbor. What a wonderful time to open up the storehouses and to do it the best that you can. I believe Christians should have the best parties in the neighborhood. 
You, you should have the best parties. And, and, and it should be a celebration of life, not of, not of drunkenness and debauchery and, and trying to, to null, numb the pain and get away from it all, but of engaging fun, celebration. And I think it's hard to do, okay? I think it's hard to do because it actually is a spiritual discipline to do this thing well, to celebrate well, and it costs you something. It does. It costs us something. Finally, last one, service and ministry. Wimber says clearly and emphatically, you cannot be in the vineyard if you don't care for the poor. It's like just the end of that. You can't be in the vineyard if you don't care for the poor. Matthew 25, we've read this a number of times. King will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. The righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes to clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? King will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. We've heard that. We've read that. We must practice this. James 2, listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love them? But you have dishonored the poor. It's not the rich who are exploiting you. Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? Then further on, (coughs) what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? The same way faith by itself if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. These are not virtues that we're to hold on to. These spiritual disciplines, these practices, which do cost us, they're commands. They're not icing on the cake. It's the intent of the Father that we do these things, and we do these things better and better as we grow closer and closer to Him. And I'll tell you, it is hard. I was in Boston all week, and there was this wonderful Thanksgiving giveaway that, that I didn't go and I, I, didn't, I didn't serve at. And I felt bad about it. And I don't know how you feel, but, but often when I see those things, I feel this, ju- this guilty judgment against me, right? That, oh, they're, they're going to expect me to be there. I've got to do these things. I've got to do that. I've, I've got to be in all these places. It is hard sometimes because we feel that judgment ourselves, right? Is, is it just me? <laughs> We do what we can. We do what we can as we move forward. As the Lord gives grace. As the Lord calls us. As he equips us. I've, so, I've said this before. If you were to put into practice every single one of these things every single day, you will not have a rich life. <laughs> you will be exhausted and you'll have a checklist every single day of I must do this and I must do this. Read the Bible for one hour, then pray out loud in a quiet place, make sure nobody can hear me, then go love the poor, then go do these things. All these things, that's not the intention. But I do believe if we neglect these spiritual disciplines, if we do not follow the Father, if we don't understand that there are even things that he's calling us to do, we're misplacing all of our trust. We're misplacing our hopes. We're misplacing the energy that we can spend in this life to prepare us for what is to come. I just want to conclude with this. May your Thanksgiving feasts be bountiful. Let it be a spiritual discipline of of, of feasting. Invite God to it this week. Truly. I I don't mean that tongue-in-cheek or or something, you know, that that you, you consider. Invite God. Invite him to come and, 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 and to have a place. And, and invite him to, to spend the time. Bless it with the, the presence of the Holy Spirit. He, it's not going to kill the vibe. All right? These are the teachings and rhythms of Jesus. Jesus says, have a feast. Invite, invite everyone.
celebrate. Have biscuits and butter and cream. You're called to have a wonderful life. As we feast on the word of God, as we follow hard after him, it's not going to be a, a rigid, disciplined, militaristic you know, take on self and, and depravity. It's meant to be a life in the land of living. It's meant to be a, a life lived in the promised land that can withstand the, the, the twists and turns and the, the turmoil that this world can throw at you. That has confronted the, the brokenness and the wrongdoing that you've committed and has given you grace and forgiveness to move on. Not anchored to the past, but pulled into the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. It's a, it's a wonderful thing. So we celebrate and we worship and we enjoy and we encourage and bless each other as we do this.